The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. Hello, this is Sean Drabick, the writer, performer, editor, and composer of Sinclair Wants to Help, a supernatural self-help podcast. Uh, this series is performed as a series of stories by the million-year-old minor-level deity Sinclair, who has uh, made this podcast as a way to give advice to people. You know, he claims that this is his way of passing on wisdom, but unfortunately Sinclair has the mindset of a grifter, and his idea of self-help is helping himself to the majority of the prophets. In general, Sinclair's stories are more about other people, his would-be disciples, detailing their lives and struggles, and then featuring Sinclair appear usually in the middle of the story when an angle appears for him to exploit and make money out of. Uh, this is the second episode of the series, uh, entitled The Life and Times of Milo Pendry. There are currently three episodes available on Spotify, Google Podcast, and most other platforms, and there are more stories currently in pre-production. Uh, thank you for listening. Sinclair Wants to Help is a fictional podcast that uses controversial and personal viewpoints to tell bizarre stories. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone has to work. Even the people who spend their whole lives trying to get out of work have to put in the work of avoiding it. And if you decide to kill yourself to get out of it, you've still got to get dressed and step in front of the truck. Work is unavoidable, and that's just as much true for us gods as it is for the rest of you. Oh, there are those like Oranos, or Izanami and Izanagi who claim to be retired, but they work harder than any of us just trying to keep up that... But just because work is something you have to do doesn't mean it's something you can't enjoy. Look, I know that you hear it all the time. That if you have a job you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, that's definitely not true. A lot of the jobs I've enjoyed have still forced me to file some really tedious paperwork and spend time with some very unpleasant people. Work is work no matter how you do it. And perhaps you're listening to this while slaving over a hot grill or stocking groceries or constructing pipe bombs and feeling completely unfulfilled and thinking you'll never be able to find a job that you enjoy. But the options are out there. You just have to broaden your horizons. You don't have to be a superstar or a head honcho to enjoy your job. It's perfectly easy to find a position that you'll be content with doing your whole life, as long as you're willing to try new experiences. There are many different things that you can try that might not sound great or pay very well, but if you try them out, you might find it's the exact kind of peculiar for you. 
There's a place in this wacky world for all of us. Take an old friend of mine, Milo Pendry. He was born in Frightened Carp, Nevada in 1858 to Derby and Darba Pendry. Now, Derby and Darba are what you would call star-crossed lovers. Frightened Carp is a very small town and didn't have a lot of opportunities for wealth. Derby approached this challenge, as most of the young men of his time did. He, he grabbed a six-shooter, hopped on a horse, and started chasing trains. It was a very cramped market to be an outlaw, though. Outside of a few small business owners and government employees, most of the population were lawbreakers of some sort. Most of the population were lawbreakers of some sort. Be them train robbers, cattle rustlers, carpet baggers, wagon burners, or horse cripplers. You know, Derby was a hard-working criminal, but he could never make that big break. Damn it if he didn't try, though. Derby robbed the town bank so often that they invited him to staff Christmas parties, and he glued his revolver to his hand so he could always have the first draw. Which made it very difficult to hold our reserves at the parties, but, eh. Derby looked at the challenge the same way he looked at any other. Keep working the way you're doing it, and eventually, it'll work. Darba had a different plan. With so many different criminals in the town, she didn't see the worth in trying to carve another niche in that business. She thought it would make more sense to choose an institutional career, something that would always be there. So after acing her correspondence course, Darba Pendry became Frightened Carp's executioner. The finest hang lady in the whole of the American West. And don't think that's just because she was one of the only ones. She was talented. Darba had a steady hand and a firm grip, and could tie a noose as easily as she tied her laces. Some people think that hanging someone is as easy as working up the courage and pulling a lever, but it's actually a very delicate art form. The bad guy puts their head in the loop, and then they get dropped through a hole, and the knot snaps the condemned's neck for what's supposed to be an instant, clean, and humane death. The key word is supposed to be. Because a lot could go wrong. A lot. Hanging is a very delicate science. If the knot isn't tied properly, or the drop isn't far enough, then you're watching some asthmatic sap dance the blue-faced ballet for 20 minutes. If the loop is too tight or the drop is too steep, then a modern and morally upright hanging quickly warps into a medieval and ethically dubious beheading. Quickly warps into a medieval and ethically dubious beheading. It's not as easy as just pulling a lever and hoping for the best. Well, it can be, but it's a lot prettier and a lot less controversial if if the person behind the trap door has done a bit of math beforehand. And Darba put in the work every time. Frightened Carp's high criminal population meant that there was no time for an extended strangulation or mopping up afterwards. She had a quota to meet. Even on the town's slowest day, Darba would have to string up at least 35 people. As good as she was, she needed help to keep up such a productive business. And even in the most law-abiding of places, the local executioner isn't exactly the most beloved citizen, so hiring an assistant in a crime hole like Frightened Carp was pretty unlikely. So Milo would be following in his mother's footsteps as her apprentice, getting his first taste of the work that would make his life whole. At eight years old, Milo was already preparing each rope to his mother's exact instructions, fixing the trapdoor when it jammed, directing the condemned through dress rehearsals, and... And Milo wasn't one of those mopey kids who didn't want to do the work their parents did. Milo took to it like electricity to a wet fish. He read and reread each of Darba's textbooks, and started asking questions that he could find no answer to in any of his literature. That got him to start asking the prisoners questions, and 
On a few occasions he didn't get spat on, he'd, he'd learn about how hanging happened all around the country. He learned about the long drop, the standard drop, the reverse drop, the pull method, the reverse method, the double drop, the double rope, the double rope, the trigger catapult, and the terrifying tongue tickler. It was only a matter of time before Milo was ready to pull the lever himself. And on his 12th birthday, Milo's time finally came, and it couldn't have been for a more perfect subject. Derby finally got in far too over his head with his antics, and got rolled in for buffalo juggling, which back then was a capital offense. Derby wanted Darba to use her position to get him out of dying, but Darba would have none of that. Let one person pass, and the whole system falls apart. And Darba's loyalty was, above all else, to her work. Derby resigned himself to his fate, but on one condition. He wanted Milo to do it. I remember talking to Derby the night before he died. My business brings me to a lot of condemned persons. Uh, they call me the patron saint of false hope in those circles. He told me that his original thought was, well, if I uh, tell her I want the kid to do it, maybe she'd uh, think better of it and I'd get to weed a lot of this. He was shocked when Darba told Milo about the plan, and Milo was ecstatic. If Milo had been enthusiastic about his training before, now he was obsessed. He was preparing everything carefully, tying and retying knots, testing the trap every day, and even made his own rope for the occasion out of the repurposed scraps of clothing from his mother's previous clients. When Derby saw that multicolor, multi-fabric chimera of a rope, it brought a tear to his eye. As a free criminal, he hadn't been able to do much to provide for his family. But as a condemned man, he was finally able to guarantee his son the future that he desperately wanted him to have. This was the opportunity to be the father he always wanted to be. When the time came for Derby to speak his final words, all he could do was smile and say, I'm proud of you, son. With his first satisfied client behind him, he and Darba thought it would be best if Milo started making his own way as a hangman. Frightened Carp may have been busy for the gallows, but there was a whole world ready to swing off Milo's rope, and Darba wasn't selfish enough to keep that for herself. He said goodbye to his mother, then took his father's horse and pistol and began traveling across the United States, working as a hangman across every continental state and territory, even the ones where it wasn't allowed. Milo was a fellow that most people would peg as strange. Certainly not the first thing you'd expect when you saw a man roll into a town on horseback. Even as a young man, Milo wore thick glasses and possessed a forehead with deep wrinkles, and his widow's peak was a shining white before he was 30. But no one would ever say Milo looked like an old man, and that's because holding up that strange visage was a bright white smile the size of a landing strip. Milo was constantly happy, a pep in his step and a song in his heart. A song he'd sing to anyone who'd listen. It just so happened that that song was Gallows Pole. As undesirable as many people thought they were, executioners were in a very high-demand position. After all, if the sheriff or marshal or whatever couldn't find someone to pull the lever, they'd have to do it themselves, and those John Wayne types are way too squeamish for that. Milo spent years rolling into towns and filling in a desperate need for the community. And once business slowed down, he'd hop on his horse and move on. And when there was no hanging to be done at all, he'd teach the next generation of executioners. 
Over the course of the next couple decades, Milo had become quite a big name in his business. He was well-liked by everyone he was around. Milo had charm that could get the whole town past his unsavory occupation. And for every young student he taught the news to, he had a family that wanted to have him over for dinner. Even his clients were all smiles when he was around. Sure, Milo was about to send these folks to their grave, but he was so excited about it that they couldn't help but love him. Milo made them want to see the hanging go as perfectly as he promised. If there's one thing I've learned over my time, having a good attitude about your work is the best way to get more of it. Milo was able to go from working small towns to big venues, and by 1880 he hit the big time in New York City. But that's also where he met his greatest enemy. Death by electricity. There was plenty of hanging left to do in the Big Apple, but the electric chair was already becoming the vogue method of execution. People were really excited when they first got electricity to work for them, and since then they've wanted to use it for everything. But it wouldn't be humanity if long before they figured out how to use this miracle of energy for computation or creation, they created a way to kill people with it. Now some people will argue that the electric chair is more humane than the noose, but those people have never had 3,500 volts go through their body and then had another healthy helping after the first one didn't do the job. The fact of the matter is, it wasn't nicer to kill people with the electric chair. It was easier. Milo was disgusted by the chair and said, It takes an artist to hang a man, but any old schmo can pull a switch. But this truth was the exact reason why Milo was rapidly losing work. The electric chair took more and more jobs away from Milo, and by the turn of the century, he couldn't even get full-time work as a hangman in New York. He had to do temp work in Ontario, and as such, he was even more embittered towards his current rival. But in 1902, Milo was offered a client that he thought would finally let him show how much better his craft was than the infant field of sparky sadism. And her name was Topsy. Pity. Poor Topsy, folks. For her story is a tragic one. Stolen from her home as a baby, Topsy was an Asian elephant forced to perform at circuses and amusement parks. But unlike some of her kind, she didn't take captivity quietly. Topsy was a killer queen with a body count. She had stomped on spectators and trainers alike, and her stumpy feet were stained red with the blood of her enemies. And to reward this magnificent creature for the crime of simply defending her dignity, she was publicly executed. You'll have to excuse me, I get very emotional talking about Topsy. I I defended her at her trial, so this I took this whole incident very personally. I suppose the argument that people who go to circuses deserve whatever is coming to them was too ahead of its time. Milo was told they wanted to publicly hang her and he was ready to prove that a good noose could instantly fell a creature even as mighty as an elephant. But when Milo arrived for the execution in 1903, he learned that the beautiful steel cable noose that he had weaved for Topsy was little more than a showpiece for the display. Topsy was to be electrocuted to death. Milo couldn't abide this corruption of his vision. He was shocked almost as deeply as Topsy was. Milo spent the night of Topsy's death in a lonely pub called the Sparkling Mousetrap, where he drowned his sorrows in a very Long Island iced tea. But as he turned his head for an instant, he realized he wasn't sulking on his own. Bartender, I said as I took my seat. Make me a Carrie Fisher. 
What on earth is that? It's a Shirley Temple with rum, coke, and cola. You just worry about Shirley, rum, and the cola. Who's Shirley Temple? The bartender asked his bushy eyebrows, furling away from his bald head towards his large mustache. Look, never mind. Just give me a big bowl of sugar, pour bourbon in it, and give me a spoon. The bartender's black mustache bristled through the air as he reeled his head back, but after regaining his senses, he began work on my request. God, what a day to wake up on. Watch a dear friend get electrocuted to death, and I can't even get the right drink to cry into. You lost a friend to electricity? Milo adjusted his large glasses as he sat down next to me, before standing back up to reacquire his drink, and then coming back to take his new place with me once again. Yeah, I replied. She was a dear thing. I mean, she was a murderer. But she only killed the people she didn't like, and I can't see much harm in an elephant doing that. Wait, your, your friend was an elephant? Topsy the elephant who was executed today? Yeah, what of it? <laughs> I was going to be her hanghand, but I pulled out after I found out they were going to electrocute the beast. Imagine! Taking away the dignity of the rope to brutally cook that poor animal. I looked at Milo for a moment, completely silent. I can't believe this. You're saying this to me, your friend, that you were going to kill her. Huh! Small world, isn't it, friend? Bartender, I'll pay for this man's drink. As Milo spoke, the bartender placed a bowl of dark brown speckled liquid on the counter in front of me. I'll pay for this man's soup. As I scooped down the fiery liquid, Milo told me his life story, and I soon told him about how our paths had mingled before. Wow, that's unusual. Is it coincidence, or are we tied together by destiny or predetermination? Oh, nothing that complicated, I answered. You send the souls off, and I just shift them around where they go for the bosses. We work in the same office, just different departments. Milo nodded to himself, but looked at me with a puzzled glance. Milo certainly understood death, but I could tell that discussing the more involved details of what happens afterwards would probably be lost on him, so I decided to change the subject. I do feel bad for you losing your work to the electric chair. People are forgetting how important the personal touch is to their work, and they're too obsessed with efficiency. You've spent your whole life training to be the best at something in the world, and now the world's decided that they don't want that anymore, like you're a samurai or a traditional animator. What you need to do is reapply your skills. Find a new way to make money with the news. How would I do that? I'd love to do public performances, but that's gone out of fashion. And all the invitations for private engagements I turned down because they're either racially or sexually charged, and those are not really my scene. I thought for a moment and then asked him, Do you really think you could hang an elephant? By the end of the next week, Milo threaded together a brand new steel cable. I had found an elephant whose wife left and didn't want to go on. And the carpenters I hired were putting the finishing touches on appropriately sized gallows. I made a bunch of flyers for winos and street urchins to pass out, and before the night was out, we had gathered quite a large crowd of people from all walks of life. Okay, it was mostly more winos and street urchins, but... But some of them were curious bystanders. At least three of them were actively protesting the event. I walked the elephant up to his podium, and the big chap stuck his head out to help Milo, who stood on top of a ladder as he eased the cable past his 
client's floppy gray ears. The rowdy crowd went quiet as Milo put his hand on the lever. They stared, waiting for the strange old man to pull back on the staff, anxiously wondering if what they had been promised was even possible. Could an elephant be hanged like a man? Was the beast's neck too thick to be mercifully snapped, meaning it was doomed to slow strangulation? Or would the pachyderm escape death entirely and bring down the whole gallows? These thoughts and more crossed the minds and faces of the crowd as, as the silence built to its crescendo, and as soon as they could take no more of the anticipation, Milo pulled back his arm, and as quickly as the elephant let out its final brassy cry, the sound was cut off by a cracking noise and the leathery slap of the creature's ears against its stupefied face. The cre cable creaked and swung side to side softly, and though the gallows shook softly, they showed no sign of crumbling down. The crowd went bananas. Actually, what kind of fruits do elephants like? The crowd went mangoes. They couldn't believe what they had seen. Milo had successfully hung an elephant, and it swung and spun around for the world to see. And people couldn't applaud him enough. They shouted his name and hounded him with praise and questions. Had he hanged anything this big before? Would he try to hang anything bigger? What about trying to hang a mouse? What does an elephant taste like? Would he be willing to sell the remains of his most recent client to the local butcher? Milo may have been approachable and friendly in the classical small town setting, but with groupies and press and butchers who stole press passes to add it to the mix, he was taken aback by the influx of attention. That's why he was lucky to have me for a friend. Hanging a mouse is an excellent idea for a challenge. There simply must be a mouse who deserves such a fate first. Elephants taste like pork stuffed with venison. We have yet to negotiate a post-mortem procedure for the body of our client, but until then, be sure to buy Pendry brand elephant ears. They may not have any meat, but you can still taste the death. This is not only the first time Mr. Pendry has hanged a creature this large, it is the first time anyone has. But it is the first of many to come for my friend Milo. Watch this space. With this moment, Milo had become one of the most in-demand entertainers in the world, and I became his faithful mentor and manager. Soon, we had hanged an elephant in Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, London, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, Moscow, Hong Kong, Beijing, Tokyo, and the jewel of civilization, Atlantic City. People were amazed to see these massive creatures dangle from the steel ropes that Milo had so carefully weaved, and I worked with him to develop these executions into extravagant stage shows. They had brass bands, elephant puppets, dancing girls, dancing men, pyrotechnics, bright lights, and Tony Bennett. It was unlike anything that people had seen before. And between the show and the generously sized drinks menu, we began to realize that if we kept touring to meet this demand, we'd be traveling until Frasho Coretti. And I had way too many side projects to be stuck doing that, and, and Milo had become quite homesick after his years as an adventuring executioner. I told Milo it was time to pick a permanent stage for the show, and he agreed, and he told me he had the perfect place to settle down. So in 1905, we packed everything together and took Milo home to Frightened Carp, Nevada, which got thrown into the land purchase that would be named Las Vegas two weeks later. Upon his return home, the show was not Milo's first priority. As he waited at the lonely door of a weary desert shack, his memory returned to the late nights spent talking to the condemned prisoners of noose-tying lessons and the final validation of pride from his father. But above all of these thoughts was the memory of his mother, and though the face of the woman who opened the door was worn leathery and hard by age in the desert sun, Milo's memory did not fail him, and neither did hers. Instantly, the long-separated mother and son embraced, 
and Milo soon began to regale her with the tales of his many executions. But as he walked into his childhood home, that he learned that there was no such need for these updates, as plastered over the wall were photo frames, plaques, memorabilia, and newspaper clippings that covered Milo's entire career, from a, from a lavish poster that advertised his appearance in Milan, to death notices of his clients that didn't even contain his name. Milo had found the success that Darba had worked so hard to make sure her son had the chance to attain. And she let Milo know that he had shown her that all of her efforts and all of her losses had not been in vain. At referencing losses, Milo had assumed she had met his father, but Darba's reference was pointed in a different direction. Darba had continued to work as a hang lady after her son went out into the world. She had to provide for herself after, and though he never asked, Darba wanted to make sure that she could, should the time ever come her son needed money, that she would have the money to help. To further bolster those funds, Darba remarried. The man was another outlaw, and he believed that marrying the town executioner was the surest way of avoiding the noose. No one had apparently told him what happened to Derby. Well, before long, his time came to swing, but he wasn't of the accepting nature that Derby was. He begged and pleaded with her, but Darba's work superseded all but her son. As his head went through the loop of the rope, he panicked and made a mad dash to the front of the stage. Darba took a tight grip of the rope and desperately tried to bring him back to the drop spot. He ran and she tugged with all her might, some of the townspeople getting behind her to help. But with one final great tug, the piercing noise of cracked wood was followed by the collapse of the structure. Darba's unlucky husband ended up with a big splinter through his throat, but as Darba rose out of the wood pile, anyone who couldn't see that they were splinters of wood would think that she was holding two bleeding hedgehogs. What Milo had seen was the best possible recovery that Darba could have hoped for, and it wasn't a spectacular one. Her fingers were twisted and they shook, and her palms could not fully extend, and the whole of both hands were dotted with old scars. Milo gently took his mother's hands in his and sighed. Here were the most nimble, precise hands he had ever seen, the hands that taught him his love for the gallows, and now they could barely close in Milo's grasp. At least, he thought, he understood why she never wrote. Milo dedicated the rest of his life to taking care of his mother, ensuring that she received all the comforts and pleasures she could possibly want in her twilight years. And that was pretty easy with the money that Milo and I pulled in through our shows. Pendry Elephant Theater brought people from across the world to see the spectacles of death and physics that Milo could display. I had realized that elephants were becoming a bit passe and a bit endangered, and that we would have to expand our show to make sure we kept our audience interested. We couldn't do any humans because that would be a public execution and against moral and civic guidelines. But I knew we still had plenty of options for new attractions. Do you ever want to see an octopus get hanged? That was interesting. One time we hanged a mongoose with a snake. Another time we hanged a snake with itself. That didn't go very well. Very messy. But we made a lot of money by selling opera glasses when we finally got around to hanging mice. I think my favorite thing was when we hanged a giraffe. We had to build a really tall gallows and the rope was long enough to reach the state's border. The novelty of death never really went away for the audience, but there came a time when Milo could no longer bear it. After five years of being a massive star in the desert dreamland and making good on his promise to take care of his mother, 
Darba's age finally caught up with her. Though she had lived a full life, Milo couldn't bear living after his mother's loss. Milo refused to perform, and soon I had to shutter the theater. I tried to get Milo out of his funk, encouraging him with new ideas and a glorious tribute show to Darba, but he wasn't having any of it. Milo's spirit died in 1910, and his body followed in 1911. As the closest thing to a friend, attorney, and benefactor that Milo had, it was down to me to fulfill his final wishes, and wouldn't you believe it, this executioner spent a lot of time thinking about his own death. Milo had drawn intricate blueprints for a gallows specifically designed to guide his coffin into the ground. The trap door and lever remained present, but instead of a traditional noose, the casket would be wrapped in a double-loop knot that, in theory, would flatten the casket out so it would be positioned properly into the plot of Earth. As absurd as it sounded, I was more than happy to get one last show out of Milo. Fans from all over the world came to pay their final respects. More interesting than that, there were hundreds of ghosts that came to congratulate Milo and welcome him, and I'm sure that most of those were people he hanged. That's just the kind of guy Milo was. The mourners were, of course, also excited to see Milo's final work of art to indicate his own transfer to the next department. As the drum roll began to lead into the final moments, the crowd went completely silent, and all tears and memories of their lost friend and hero momentarily were banished by anticipation. I pulled the lever, and with a snap of the trap door and a swish of the pulley, the coffin descended down to the ground, where it immediately fell into place. Except it was standing upright, immediately broke into pieces allowing for Milo's body to roll into the dirt, where a very patient coyote had been hoping for such an occurrence. In hindsight, I probably should have used rope instead of yarn. But that's the problem when someone is the best at something. It's hard for anyone else to be nearly as good. Sinclair Wants to Help was written and performed by Sean Drevick. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and Reddit on the subreddit page r slash Sinclair Wants to Help. If you want to contact the show or ask any questions, email us at SinclairWantsToHelp at gmail.com, all lowercase. We'd love to do a mailbag episode.